Jim, where are you going to look in this whole galaxy? Where are you going to look for Spock's brain? Bridge to all decks. Red alert. Red alert. Battle stations. It's time for an unforgettable episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morrison. I believe that we should retitle this episode Scott's Brain. <laughs> Scott's Brain might have been a better title. In fact, it might have been a better episode because, <laughs> you know, look at the results. Spock's Brain. We are here. Steve Morris, we are. we have arrived. We have arrived at one of the one of the most memorable <laughs> episodes of Star Trek, not for the right reasons. And I, I don't know. I guess the first question for you is like, what have been your feelings about Spock's brain over the years? You, you know what I was thinking about? Because I was thinking about, well, what is Spock's brain? Because <laughs> Spock's brain is actually more than an episode, I think. I think Spock's brain it it is a symbol of something and you know what i suddenly went is like you know what spock's brain is like spock's brain is like jumping the shark spock's brain is like the episode of happy days where arthur fonzarelli water skis over a great white shark now i have when i happy days was like my favorite show and so my guess is when that episode came out i thought it was great <laughs> yeah i'm sure i loved it and i'm sure if i went back to rewatch it i would see just how stupid that episode is and like all of episodes of star trek i didn't think as a kid that spock's brain was particularly bad and now it's so funny because we just did my least favorite episode of star trek hands down yep and I now we are going to do the symbol of star trek essentially jumping the shark which is Spock's brain. You know, and, that, is, that is a great yeah. way to put it. It is, it is the episode in which Star Trek jumped the shark. And look at, look at the episode they chose for the beginning of season two. Yep. You know, after, after a, a great buildup in season one, they come back in season two with an episode for the fans. The first trip to Vulcan, we see, we see other Vulcans, we see the, the live long and prosper. And we see the symbol for the very first time. Kirk has to fight Spock. It was like, like a, a Star Trek fans dream come true episode. So they come back for season three after the fans saved the day so that a season three could even happen. And what do they put on first Spock's brain? So you go from a mock time, the representing the very best of Star Trek to Spock's brain representing some, not, not the worst, but it's close. It's close. And, you know, I've, I've, my feelings about Spock's brain have definitely evolved over the years. And I didn't need the teacher to have this epiphany. But like the episode we just did, And the Children Shall Leave, which was the episode they filmed just prior to Spock's brain, that's just a bad episode. That's an episode that offers no enjoyment at all watching it. Spock's brain does offer enjoyment, though maybe for unintentionally amusing reasons. But also the the specter of Spock's brain is this, Steve. Over the years, over the decades, Spock's brain has been a punching bag for Star Trek. Even right. people, even people who don't like Star Trek. And maybe even some people who've never heard of Star Trek 
know what Spock's brain is because of all the pop cultural references to Spock's brain over these decades, like in The Simpsons, you know, they make fun of Spock's brains. I think in Futurama, they make fun of Spock's brain. So, so it's like trouble with tribbles, you know, even non-fans know about it, but, but, you know, Spock's brain is a completely different episode than the trouble with tribbles. Maybe it should have been intentionally funny and then, then it might've been a better episode, but it really is. If I, if I dare use the word fascinating, to see what Spock's brain represents. And I mean, there, there are Star Trek conventions where they will show Spock's brain so the fans can laugh at it and make fun of it. And they'll have like sort of Mystery Science Theater 3000 sure. presentations where they'll, well, they, they'll make fun of the episode. And, that, you know, that actually hurts me to see that because I, I love the characters so much and I don't want, I don't want to see them made fun of in that way. But but I get the appeal of using of using Spock's brain to do that. Now my question is, do you think that because uh, season three was renewed and they they moved the time slot to 10 p.m. on Friday nights, which was not the right time slot for Star Trek? So my question, Steve Morris, is this: Do you think Spock's brain was literally a f- you to NPC? Let me uh, go back and see if I understand your question correctly. Who made the decision to put Spock's brain first? That's the question. I don't know if it was something that NBC chose or if it was something that that Paramount chose, that the producers chose. That I don't but, know. So if because if your question is, did the producers put Spock's brain first as part of revenge for the bad time slot? No, I don't think so. A, a, because the, the biggest reason is why would you shoot yourself in the foot? Like that's yeah. not, it's just not a motivation. Hey, we've made this terrible episode. Let's put it first. Nobody thinks that way. Like I, so no, I don't, I don't think that I, what I wonder is if it's the opposite, which is that they went, that actually was done out of the way that executives tend to make poor decisions, which is looking at something from the outside and not understanding it so much from the inside. And let me preface this by saying there are fantastic executives out there. And we've even heard, you know, of executives working with Star Trek that made some great suggestions. But sure. frequently what the, happens is they'll go, oh, Spock is our biggest character. A mock time, that was very successful. It was a Spock-oriented show. Let's put a Spock-oriented show first. This is Spock's brain done that's going to work great without looking at what the actual episode is and, <laughs> yeah. and and this is and this is the thing to me is you know I, I came up with sort of my prescription for a good star trek episode and for me that is an interesting science fiction idea some good adventure you know story p- points yeah. and per- making it personal and obviously a mock time has all those things spock's brain maybe it has a good science fiction idea in there somewhere maybe there's some okay things and it's not personal at all. There's nothing personal in this episode. If we look at the first bunch of episodes that we've gone through, does uh, Paradise Syndrome have personal things with science fiction ideas and good adventure elements? Absolutely. Does um, the Enterprise incident? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Does And the Children Shall Lead in Spock's Brain? No. No. They really, really don't. And, and and here's the other thing too that I just and normally I I try not to give too many of my thoughts before we start the show, but I do want to give one more, which is that so much of the problem with this episode is the f- phrase Spock's brain. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's so there are elements of this episode that are just so stupid and sound 
so stupid yep. that it lowers what actually isn't as bad an episode as some of the other ones we've done. But the but it's it's like, you know, it's actually okay for a yeah. lot of it. Yeah. And then you hear something that is just ridiculous. Yep. And it drops it down into the toilet. That's that's the that's what we're as opposed to in the children shall lead, which I find unwatchable pretty much beginning to end. Yeah. That yeah. that is a different diagnosis than I will give to Spock's brain. Well, I, I, first of all, I agree with your points completely. And when we were closing out and the children shall leave and I promoted the next episode as being Spock's brain, I also said that I like Spock's brain and I do like Spock's brain. I like it because it is, it's not a boring episode to watch. Uh, it's a fascinating episode to experience to the extent that the teaser and the first act are great and then it goes from being great to good in the second act, and then it goes off the rails in the third and the fourth acts. It's just such a fascinating trajectory for an episode to watch it, you know, go from being starting off great and having great intentions, like the intentions you said that you clearly pointed out, uh, like with a comparing a mock time, the success of a mock time with the failures of Spock's brain, but the intent was there, and the irony. With NBC, if it was NBC that actually chose Spock's brain because it was a Spock episode, the irony is that it's not a Spock episode. No. It's a, it's a Kirk episode because Kirk is lost without his his friend and his his first officer. And he, just like with Amok time, he pulls out all the stops to save him. But it was actually, you know, when it came to to the, the the concept of like you know maybe there was some intent there to kind of like you know stick it to the NBC executives. It was actually William Shatner who said in his 2008 book Up Till Now he said our first show that third season might have been a tribute to the NBC executives who so mishandled this show. It was a it was a show it was a society in desperate need of a brain. that's from william shatner himself and uh, you know we're going to see a lot from this point forward in the third season because even though spock's brain was the first episode of the third season to air it was like the sixth episode of the third season to film and it was filmed on six days between july 8th and july 15th 1968 it was the 62nd episode to film overall uh, the season three premiere, 56 to air, when it aired on September 20th, 1968. But from this point forward, you're going to start to see so many key creative geniuses involved with Star Trek start to leave the show, starting with director Mark Daniels. Mark Daniels, mm-hmm. who gave us the Doomsday Machine and you know the Naked Time. This was his 14th episode. And his last episode, because he did not appreciate the restrictions that were now being placed on the directors of Star Trek in its third season by its new producer, Fred Freiberger. And I've got a very interesting quote to read from him, you know, when we uh, wrap all this up. But it was so Spock's Brain was directed by Mark Daniels. It was written by another Star Trek genius, Gene Kuhn, under his pseudonym, Lee Cronin. As we stated during Spectre the Gun, which was the first episode to film for season three, he was using the name Lee Cronin because he'd already started working as a writer-producer for It Takes a Thief at Universal, and the only way he could keep writing for Star Trek 
is if he sort of you know did it under the radar. So that's why the pseudonym came up. But Kuhn wrote his story outline on March 11th, 1968. He proceeded to a first draft teleplay by April 15th. Fred Freiberger, the season three producer, revised the story outline on April 22nd. And then Kuhn took a second stab at a draft teleplay on May 8th. Story editor Arthur Singer did a script polish, a final draft on June 26th. And Fred Freiberger did a script polish, a revised final draft on July 1st. Now, there, there are so many things about, about Spock's brain, Steve, that I actually really like, starting with the score. The music is so very good. It was recorded specifically for this episode by Fred Steiner. Fred Steiner, also a legend, a legendary composer for Star Trek. This is also his last episode, his last score. The score is composed on August 26, 1968. The visual effects for the Enterprise, of course, were done by the Howard Anderson Company. The non-Enterprise visual effects were done by the Westheimer Company. And, you know, so much of Fred Steiner's score was, was used throughout the rest of season three that you really see how much of a dominant score that it was. And, and for an episode that has its faults, the score was not one of them. So some of the things going on in the world at the time from July 8th to the 15th of 1968, there is once again shelling across the Israeli-Egypt border near Suez. North Vietnam is getting more and more aid from the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Georges Pompidou, who was the prime minister of France, uh, resigns after a large conflict with Charles de Gaulle, who was the president. Vassar University on July 11th made the decision to become fully co-ed after 107 years wow. as an all-women's school. And then, you know, we've been talking about the upcoming presidential election. We talked about the assassinations, about Johnson's choosing not to run. Well, at this moment, the latest Gallup poll shows Hubert Humphrey is ahead of Nixon. Again, these are things where the world would have been completely different. Oh, no question about it. <laughs> um, you know, I've been talking about Last week, we had two hijackings going to Cuba. This week, a hijacking on the way to Cuba was foiled by the flight engineer who disarmed the hijacker. Wow, cool. Yeah. And this I knew nothing about, which is kind of shocking. On July 13th, a influenza A strain in Hong Kong was officially declared a worldwide pandemic. I didn't know about a pandemic in 1968. It I killed somewhere, somewhere between one and four million people. In, in Hong Kong? Well, it start, it's, it's known as the Hong Kong flu. That's where it started. Oh, but wow. uh, no, no, it was a worldwide pandemic. I don't know how much it made it to the United States. But, you know, <laughs> we certainly know a lot about pandemics now. And Yeah, I, no, yeah I we sure do. <laughs> On July 15th, the very first commercial airline service from the United States to the Soviet Union began. Um, and on the same day, on ABC TV, One Life to Live premiered, which went on for 43 more years until finally being canceled in 2012. No way. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a long life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not as long. I forget which one's the, the longest. It might be... Um, Guiding Light. Guiding Light, yeah, which is like, you know, starts on radio and goes yep. for 70 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those things are... Uh, and, and by the way, it's funny talking about uh, soap operas. At this very moment, I am preparing a movie that deals with soap operas for the cinephiles. It'll be coming out in a couple of weeks, and that is Tootsie. 
Oh, oh, God, what a great episode. What a great episode of The Cinephiles that's going to be. I love that movie. It's such a good movie. Um, But we are not discussing Tootsie. We are discussing Spock's Spock's brain. brain. And I will say one more thing. (laughs) Yeah. One of the other big problems with Spock's brain is they shouldn't have titled it Spock's brain. Awful title. Because it's I mean, I already don't like when you say the name of a title, except under very specific circumstances in a movie or TV show. The fact that they name this thing Spock's Brain and we say Spock's Brain over and over. And it is a terrible, terrible choice. Uh, I, I don't know how many times it was. But one of our, I'm sure one of our loyal listeners, one of our enterprisers will hit us up on our Facebook page and let us know exactly how many times the words Spock's brain is actually used in Spock's brain. Uh, but I am with you. I think one of the starting points to, to dive in to make fun of, of Spock's brain is because of the title of the episode. Yeah. It's just an awful, awful title. And, you know, they like Gene Kuhn, I mean, you know, with, with the devil in the dark and Aaron, the mercy and, and, and all these other great titles that he's come up with. I mean, like they couldn't have changed the, the name of the, uh, the name of this episode. It's, it's, you're right. It's, it's a, it's, it's an awful title. I hate the title. Yeah, I mean, there, there must have been some Shakespeare quote or some philosophical, totally. something about, you know, a mind apart, a, you know, like, a you know, separate the soul or some like, well, and this is the thing, too, and we'll get into it is there are ideas here that could have been interesting. Yep. We just mm-hmm. didn't explore them. Um, <laughs> but we begin. And by the way, Scott, I actually don't agree. I don't love this teaser. It's a we start right in the middle of a red alert. I find it all very slow in terms of its pacing. Uh, but we're watching something's going on. Lots of looking. We've uh, armed our phaser banks. Configuration unidentified. Eye on propulsion. High velocity. Though of a unique technology. Any contact, Lieutenant? Scotty is very impressed with the spaceship. And, you know, uh, it takes a lot to impress Scotty. Interesting design. I've never seen anything like it. And ion propulsion at that. Oh, they could teach us a thing or two. So you don't like this teaser. I like this teaser. I think it's slow. Okay. That's, that's my big thing. Because I know we've talked before about starting a scene or getting into a scene while it's already underway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and that's what's happening here. You're the red alert that the klaxon is going off. Uh, everyone is at their stations. It, it, it's actually busy on the bridge. Like everyone mm-hmm. is is doing their job. And you have, you know, new ship that was created for the beginning of season three for this episode. You have uh, a great score. I think Fred Steiner's score for this episode, at least the first part of it, is actually cinematic. And I, I just love that everyone is is playing to their strength on the bridge. Life forms, Mr. Spock? One, humanoid or similar, low level of activity, life support systems functioning. And then that one passenger beams aboard the Enterprise, and there this woman appears with this strange sort of innocent smile on her face. This woman in a miniskirt and go-go boots beams aboard the Enterprise. We'll learn later on in the episode. Her name is Kara, and uh, her uh, she's played by Marge Doucet. She is a two-time Emmy nominee. To talk about soap operas. She was nominated for All My Children and for Guiding Light. She was also on the soap opera Santa Barbara. She was also on TV's The Wild Wild West, Bonanza, Hawaii Five O, Hogan's Heroes, Mannix, Barnaby Jones, The Facts of Life. But here she is on the bridge 
on the Enterprise, everyone stops what they are doing and stare at her. Spock and Kirk stand up and Kirk does his greeting. I'm Captain James T. Kirk of the, this is the Starship Enterprise. And she looks at Spock and then looks down at her wrist and pushes these buttons on this device on her wrist. Everybody passes out. And, and what I should say is it's not just on the bridge. Everyone on the Enterprise goes out, including Chapel and McCoy. Um, and she walks through the bridge, walks up to Spock, touches his head, smiles. The camera pushes in and we fade out. I, I think this is a great teaser. And if I was watching this first as the season premiere of season three, I would be like, wow, we're, we're back. Like, sure, Star Trek is back. And not only are we back, but we are red alert. And there is a, uh, uh, a strange, a strange alien ship approaching the Enterprise. Like, this is great. Oh, my God. This is exactly what I was hoping for. But, uh, um, yeah, you know, that's going to be short lived. We come back in act one and everyone's sort of lights come back on and everyone's sort of waking up. And then as we're trying to get reports, we hear from McCoy. You better come down to sick bay. We cut there, and there is Spock lying on a bed with a fabric over his head, and he's in some huge device. And we see the stats on the medical monitor just at the very bottom. And that that his Vulcan physique actually got him to the point where McCoy was able to step in and attach him to the life to the life support and keep his body going. But they have no idea what happened. They've got him on complete life support. Was he dead? He was worse than dead. Jim. Come on, Bones, what's the mystery? And this is the first of many moments where the execution of a line, instead of ex- in- inciting mystery and suspense, incites some unintentional chuckles and laughter. His brain is gone. And there's a, this, this music sting to really overstate the obvious. And Kirk, Kirk mouths his brain? And this is a, a hint of the unintentional sort of chuckles that are to come. Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be the repetition of that word brain, man. Yeah, it's just gonna get really rough. Um, <laughs> here's a question for you. Yeah, why is Spock in sickbay? I always thought and that's a great question. Like, how did he get from the bridge? Yeah, sickbay. I think this alien woman who beamed aboard, obviously she is already under the influence of the teacher. I think she knew exactly where to go, and she brought him to sickbay to take out his brain and left him there. I mean, but she did not leave him attached to life support. Like, she just left him there. But so so, so did she use sickbay equipment? See, that's a question. I, I, I don't think that she did because McCoy would have noticed that she actually used equipment. I, I don't think – I think this is just one – it's minor, but it makes no sense. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, because yeah. because the thing is, is that one would assume that if you want, if you had the super technology to remove somebody's brain, it's on her ship. You know what I mean? It's not in sick bay. Why, I mean, why either, did she take Spock to her ship? Yeah. And just take his brain there and who cares about his body? And if they didn't need the technology, if she, maybe she needed to lie him on a bed. Well, it didn't have to be in sick bay. Like the reason he's in sick bay was because that's where he needed to be for McCoy to save his life. You know? Like it just, it's, it's not a big deal, but it's one, you know, one of many questionable, things. It's a yeah. questionable plot point that bears scrutiny for sure. And, 
And what we hear is that this is way beyond our technology because they managed to remove every single thing and seal every nerve absolutely perfectly. And then we get a bunch of things that end up, I think, being somewhat contradictory. An incredible Vulcan physique hung on to the life support cycle to cover. But there is no mind. And then we have another music sting. The overused music stings is also part of what makes this turn to comic. There is a music sting coming up later in this episode that I, I absolutely hate because it just beats you over the head in yeah. the worst possible way. But, you know, I, I think you know what I'm talking about, but we'll get to it. Bones, how long can you keep him functioning? If it happened to any of us, I would say indefinitely. But Vulcan physiology limits what I can do. Spock's body is much more dependent upon that tremendous brain for life support. It's all these weird contradictions because he just said his body managed to survive without his brain, which our bodies couldn't. But now he's saying his body is too dependent upon his brain, whereas ours could survive without his brain, without our brains. Right, right. You know, it's just it's just weird. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies in this episode. And then Kirk says, we'll have to take him with us. Take take him where? In search of his brain, doctor. (laughs) My note here is these are all dumb lines yep i agree like and and i go like okay the idea of what happens to someone if you remove their brain and what is the brain without the human body and can the brain be used to do another thing i actually think those are interesting science fiction ideas but the hunt for spock's brain is not um you, you yourself in your segment where you go over world events uh, on December 3rd, 1967, uh, the very first heart transplant was conducted. Oh, right. And when we were talking about that, right. and I said that was an inspiration, that was the inspiration for this episode because they wanted, you know, the writers and producers of Star Trek loved, the, loved being able to, to, to link an episode like this to what was such a hot topic, organ transplants. And here you have an episode called Spock's Brain, and it just like announces, oh, something's up, you know, and not that it really drove up the ratings very much, but they love the idea of, of it, just like with the, the Enterprise incident, you know, and the Pueblo incident being something that was tied to a, a very, right. very well-known current event. Except, well, this is the thing. It's not engaging in the actual science fiction idea. Mm. What would happen, Scott, if I took your brain and could put it somewhere else? Would you still be you? That's the scientific idea. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, this isn't, we're not really dealing with that at all. And I I also have a question, uh, too. When Kirk says, then we'll have to take him with us, what does he mean? Take him with us in search of his brain. So in what way? How are they taking him with us? What's he referring to? His body. Right. Is he saying, because this is what I think he's saying, is he saying, well, you're going to have to rig something where Spock can walk around even if he doesn't have his brain and control him with a remote control, which is what happens later in the episode? Is that what he's saying? I think he's just saying. Because they're going to take him. He's on the ship. Yeah, he's on the ship. So, of course, they're going to take him. But I mean, they're not going to leave him take behind. Him with, right. Kirk is going to take him with him. To, well, maybe, you know, they could have gone to like a star base or something like that to, uh, to, I mean, but they're going to take his body. The right. only, that's where I go. Like the only possible meaning I can come up with for this line is anticipating what McCoy is going to do with Spock's body later in the episode. But the fact that Kirk can say that 
when no brain has ever successfully been removed from a living body, right, right, right. her can't know that we would be capable of, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a useless line that doesn't, that also doesn't make sense. Well, it, it also, what, one, where, one way in which the line is useful is like, this is, this is, okay. This is the, uh, the moment when we announce the intentions of this episode, that we are going to take Spock with us while we search the galaxy for his brain. Kirk is saying, well, we'll find it. And, you know, McCoy is saying, where are you going to look in this whole galaxy? Where are you going to look for Spock's brain? Again, that line is used so many times. And this is one of the key things is that McCoy is not capable of restoring the brain. So even if they find it, we're not going to be able to restore it, which is a key plot point. The thief that took it has the knowledge. I'll force it out of there. If you don't find it in 24 hours, you'd better forget the whole thing, Jim. So we have a thing that has never, ever happened before where Spock's body survive, manages to survive without the brains. Where McCoy says, I could predict how this would go better if we had humans. I can't predict how long I can keep this body alive with its Spock. Oh, except there's a hard 24-hour limit for this thing that's never happened before. And, and as you know, in previous Star Trek episodes, where there was a race against time. Absolutely. Th that, that execution of the race against time created so much drama and suspense. And, and, and here, like for some reason, that race against time, because we are, we are counting down the hours and the minutes that we have left until it's too late to replace Spock with his brain. And for some reason in this episode, I'm not filled with suspense and intensity, you know, like with the doomsday machine or something like that, uh, or, or the naked time where, you know, we got to, you know, we're uh, 12 minutes until we enter the atmosphere of side 2000, you know, there, there's a race against time that is lacking in, in dramatic suspense. Well, and part of it, it's this, this is why I point this out is that it's because of how it's set up. If Jim said, how long can you keep him alive? He's like, I'm barely keeping him alive. Now mm -hmm. we're lucky that his Vulcan physique was so strong. Otherwise he'd be dead. Like cut out the thing that I could keep humans alive longer because that confuses this issue. Say, no, he's barely alive now, and he's already weakening. Heart rate's down. My guess is maybe, maybe he can make it 24 hours, but even I don't know. Yeah. But there's no way. But this has never happened before. There's no way for me to know. Now we have a ticking clock, but the setup makes more sense, you know? Sure, sure. Rather than a hard 24 hours, which doesn't make any sense. Well, Mark Daniels, one thing that he really wanted to do during the directing of this episode he wanted to pull off an ambitious shot on the bridge where Kirk walks back and forth in front of the Starfield, the view screen, and you see that the Enterprise is in motion. Now, on every episode prior to this, they would use a stock shot of like, you know, Sulu looking at the view screen or Chekhov looking at the view screen or just the view screen itself. And there would be a, a, a visual effects shot of the star field or the planet or whatever it was, you know, the doomsday machine, right. you know, uh, but in this episode, Mark Daniels wanted to shoot from an angle on the bridge that was never done before. And that you would see that like, Oh, the star, that view screen actually does work because there's a star field and the stars are moving. So the only way that he would have gotten his chance is if the episode was brought in on schedule 
If it looked mm. like Daniels was going on schedule, then the then Freiberger would have said, "Okay, take your take your your dream shot." But so now when we're on the bridge, the first thing we see is Kirk in front of the view screen and the star field is moving and that was that was achieved by rear projection so that right. it, it looks like oh wow the, this is a real functioning bridge like it's like uh, again it's a, it's an angle that was never used before and it you know was never used again in in the original series but to sort of get uh, the safety earlier in the production Mark Daniels had the scene play out where Kirk and Chekhov and Uhura and Sulu are looking, you know, you see them looking at the screen and you see them say their their lines. And then, you know, later the visual effects shot would be implanted over the view screen. So so he filmed that earlier in, in the schedule. But when it looked like they were they were on schedule, Freiberger said, Okay, you got your wish, take your shot. So on day six, Mark Daniels got his wish and he filmed the scene on the bridge with Kirk walking back in front in front of the back and forth in front of the view screen with that view, rear projection and you know a Star Trek fan is a Star Trek fan when they they cut Spock's brain some slack because of this ambitious shot for the original series like only a Star Trek fan would say yeah but but Spock's brain yeah it's not a great episode but it's got that great shot of the real projection that Mark Daniels did that's when you know like a Trekkie is a true Trekker (laughs) well I think we've proven definitively that I am not a true Trekker yes you are (laughs) no I'm not based on your definition because I looked at that it's funny because I have in my notes I was like oh that's interesting that he's walking in front of the stars on the what an interesting shot here's why I don't think it's a good thing why is that shot important in this particular episode? This isn't a particular space episode. There's nothing particularly interesting on screen. And so going, and I, my guess is Mark Daniels is on his way out. He doesn't want to be here anymore. He's probably wanted to do a shot like this and been turned down over and over again for the past 13 episodes. And he went, man, I'm going to get that damn shot. I agree. No matter what. And, and But the thing is, it's not necessary. And so what he did was he rushed what was already a crappy episode <laughs> in order to get, add a useless shot. It doesn't add anything to the story at all. I agree with you in terms of that. You are also not a true Trekker based <laughs> on your definition. Well, well, what I, I agree with you that that the shot itself doesn't the, the, the shooting of the scene in this particular way does not add anything to the story it doesn't advance the plot in any way that makes a significant difference but i think it is so cool looking it's a cool shot and i agree with you i think mark daniels is probably like you know what i already said i would do this episode i'm not crazy about the third season i'm not crazy about the politics going on you know on the lot and i'm not crazy about fred freiberger and and he was not as you'll find out later when we talk about you know what what people said about the episode so i think you're right i think mark daniel's say you know what i've always wanted to do this shot this is my last episode by hook or by crook i'm going to do it and i don't care about what else is filmed how fast we film it in order to make the time to get that shot i agree with all of that but i think that like among the many merits of Spock's brain, including the music and including the teaser in the first act, this particular rear projection shot, I think is awesome. 
And when I was watching Spock's brain again for the cool. first, yeah, when I was watching Spock's brain again for the first time in a long time, because like and the children shall lead, this is not one that I've I've seen in a really long time. I was watching it and in HD, I was like, wow, that rear projection shot is so cool. And it's the only time in the original series that they did this. So for that reason alone, Spock's brain deserves some props. I have one more totally minor nitpick, but you know how at the beginning and you know, the first season, the early episodes, they'd say, okay, maximum warp and it's warp four. And then, you know, we just really hadn't figured out what this was in this episode. They say maximum warp and they say, okay, warp six. And it's like, look, we're in the third season. Yeah. You know, we just had a warp nine just a couple episodes ago. Yep. Like <laughs> you should have figured this out by now. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. Maximum warp, warp six. Sue, remember when we got out of the way of the Romulans? You know, we yeah, went to warp just, nine. It was, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Punch you it. Know? <laughs> Punch it, Sue. <laughs> um, so, but now we've here, we've used up 15 hours and 20 minutes, leaving eight hours and 40 minutes of our 24 hours. And suddenly we lost the trail. We had this great ion trail. It's gone. We've, showed up at this system the star system the the ship went somewhere there and i think this scene is a really good star trek scene i love it why you tell me what's going on here so basically what we're going to do and what's interesting about it is normally we would have the group deducing logically an answer would be kirk spock and mccoy Mm -hmm. and now we have kirk with Chekhov, sulu and uhura trying to figure out which of these three planets the ship was most likely to land on and we get information of each of these three planets, none of which have the proper technology to make the ship. The first, I like, by the way, that Chekhov says, The one on the left, number three, the rates letter B on the industrial scale. Earth equivalent approximately 1485. And I'm like, 1485 is not approximate. That's specific. (laughs) It's pretty specific. But... And then we go, the next planet is level G, which is around the year 2030. Which we're almost at. <laughs> which we're almost, that's true. It's very scary. And we don't have anything like ion propulsion, which means that Sulu's right when he says, But that ship, Captain, either was many years ahead of us, or it was the most incredible design fluke in history. And then we go to the third planet, which is in a glacial age. It's There are life forms, but it's totally primitive. And we go, which of these three planets is it most likely that this ship came from? Now, as I understand you, Mr. Chekhov, there are three Class M planets. Yes, sir. Not one of which is capable of launching an interstellar flight. No, sir. Yet one of them accomplished it. Yes, sir. So what's interesting is that Chekhov picks one planet, I think the first planet. Mm -hmm. Sulu picks the second planet. And it's actually Uhura who picks up a regular source of energy from the third planet, which is actually planet six, it's Sigma Draconis Six, is actually the planet that Uhura is referring to. It could be natural, volcanic activity, steam, any of a number of causes, but it's very regular. And Kirk has to make a very difficult decision. And this is this actually I really like. First of all, I love that the four of them put their heads together yeah. and really play to each of their strengths and and talked it through. It was it was such a great showing of teamwork among the the main crew that you're right. It's usually just Kirk and Spock deciding these things, or you know maybe Scotty's on the bridge, or maybe McCoy is on the bridge for a moment. But to have Uhura and Chekhov and Sue all weigh in on this, I think this is another 
another element of Spock's brain that makes it extremely worthy because moments like this were really few and far between in the original series. And again, we're still in the first act. So for, for act one, for the teaser in act one, despite the, the overabundance of the use of the words Spock's brain, the teaser in act one are very, very, very strong. So based on Uhura's information and Kirk has to decide, we're only going to get one shot at this. We only have, uh, what is it, eight hours and 40 minutes left. We're not going to be able to go to each planet. We got to pick the right one. So Kirk has to play a hunch, and he hunches that the third planet that they were talking about, which is Sigma Draconis 6, is the one that they are going to go to. And Kirk says, If I guess wrong, Mr. Spock is dead. Spock will die. I think it's a good end of an act, and I like this puzzle. I think this is an interesting – we have three planets. Logically, we might want to pick the most the most technologically advanced, but since none of them can make this ship, we're going to pick the least technologically yeah. advanced mm-hmm. because it has something mysterious, which is this powerful energy source right. that doesn't fit there. And I'm like, that is a good Star Trek puzzle, and I agree with you. I like the fact that we have these other characters that are being able to be involved. So, so far, so far, so good in Spock's brain, even though I know what's coming, you know, having seen the episode many times before, though certainly not recently, I was still like, wow, the teaser in Act 1 are extremely strong. And some other notes, like I mentioned, that just like with a mock time, Kirk is pulling out all the stops to save Spock. Now, in the first... I don't know. So I'll push back on that one just a little bit. Okay. Because what's the alternative? In a mock time, he's under pressure from Starfleet, and he's going to give up his career in order to save Spock. In here, there's nothing like that. So I don't... I don't know what stops he's pulling out. He's doing that. It seems like normal behavior. There's no yeah. sacrifice here. Yeah. He's doing what he should be doing. He just has yeah. uh, eight hours and 40 minutes left to do yeah. it. So he has one chance to pick the planet. Right. Uh, but in the first outline that Kuhn wrote, Kirk, Spock and McCoy were exploring a small asteroid when Spock is separated and his brain is, is taken and a particle trail leads the enterprise to the planet Nefel which is populated by passive little men uh, led by Irvine. That's the name of the character, Irvine. And they need Spock's brain to run their life support systems. So some elements from that outline did make it to the finished product. Bob Justman, who was now a co-producer, uh, had some ideas that were in, you know, he was acting like a producer because at this point when he was working and giving notes on the outlines, Fred Freiberger wasn't, wasn't the new producer yet. And Bob Justman thought he was going to take over from John Meredith Lucas and be the new showrunner. Right. That didn't happen. But uh, it was Bob Justman's idea. So instead of exploring an asteroid, he said, you know what? We should start the teaser on the Enterprise and we should have the entire crew pass out and we should have multiple planets for Kirk to choose from, increasing the stakes and the tension. All those ideas were Bob Justman's, and they were incorporated into the final draft teleplay. So it's act two. We beam down. We're with Chekhov, Kirk, Scotty, and a couple of red guys. Yep. Uh, We talk about, so we're on this planet. I like, by the way, that the psych on this planet is like a pale blue, because we've had these purple ones and red ones, and this is like, A, closer to sky, and B, reinforces the fact that it's cold. 
Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That the sky was. Yeah. They didn't use that that red or orange. Yeah. You know, that they use so many times to depict an alien landscape. Uh, they have eight hours and twenty nine minutes left, and Gene Roddenberry. Uh, you know, at this point, you know, he was still very involved, a lot more involved than he probably is given credit for since people said that, oh, he just like, you know, totally left the series in the dust. But it was Roddenberry's idea to have Chekhov be a part of the landing party. And, you know, Roddenberry really wanted to make Chekhov a more prominent player. And the season started like that was going to happen because, I mean, look what the look at his role in Spectre of the Gun. Uh, But, you know, as the season went on, the only other time he really had a substantial part was in The Way to Eden. But I also like, uh, you know, when they first beam down to the planet, instead of Spock being with them, obviously, you know, Scotty is with them and Scotty's got the tricorder. Life form readings, Mr. Spock? Mr. Scott? You mentioned at the very beginning the idea of Kirk having to go without Spock. Mm -hmm. And this moment is the only moment where we see that. That would have been a really interesting, like, for instance, on that previous scene that we both like on the bridge, if we had actually said something about normally Mr. Spock would help me with this, but then he depends on the rest of his crew and made it more obvious, I think that would have been interesting. Yeah, But that theme of Kirk without Spock, that's not something we're actually going to deal with. It's not really in the show. We should be dealing with that because that's the, the, the two of them together are you know they they are the whole of the two of them is greater than the sum of their parts yeah. and if there was a moment in the end of the first act where kirk was uh feeling helpless and hopeless because spock wasn't there to advise him and then you have chekov and sulu and uhura step up and help him make the right decision that would have been, had a better payoff it's still a great moment it's still a great scene yeah but you're right. I think that just uh, that was a well. I would say a few rewrites away, but but one more rewrite would have uh, helped in that regard. Yeah. Scattered, widely spaced, humanoid, all right, on the large side. And at that moment, we see this big guy with a big beard in sort of primitive clothes sneaking around behind the rocks. And this is also when the score, Fred Steiner's score, takes a, a turn for the worse. Like I'm not crazy about the music that's played when these when these giant Neanderthal men type are sneaking behind the rocks. Uh, it's a little too on the nose as uh, to depict a primitive culture. I had forgotten how much we see of these big guys kind of grouping together and mounting their attack on our Enterprise crew. I'd forgotten that that's sort of set up that way. Um, I, I don't know that if I feel it's real, neither good nor bad. We get a funny joke, by the way, of... Temperature, a high maximum of 40. Livable. You have a thick skin. Yeah, well, Chekhov is from Russia, so He's of course Russia, 40 so. degrees is livable. And now we realize our sensors say that these uh, primitive men are coming in to attack, and we have us setting up for defense with our phasers set to stun because we want to be able to talk to them. And this is totally an example that... It ends up being a pretty weak and boring kind of action sequence that could have yeah. been an interesting one. What happens is the big guys come in. They're all terrible with their weapons. They are nowhere threatening. They miss everybody. It's it's weak. And then we stun one of them and the rest of them run away. Whereas if they had surprised our guys and maybe were in hand-to-hand combat and took out a red guy, and we we're really then it would be more exciting. But it yeah. isn't. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like oh. if they threw a spear at like one of the red shirts. And meanwhile, the red shirts uh, they beam down with no, none of the red shirts died fine. in this episode. Yeah, well, they're fine. <laughs> this is the, you know like a basic rule of adventure stories is you're always supposed to make your bad guys more scary than your good guys. Mm-hmm. Is that and so have yes, our guys have this huge technological advan- advantage. Well, then if you want to make it exciting, you have to limit their technological advantage. You know, right, right, right. Like that's but they didn't make it exciting. So we stunned this one guy. And he is groggy, and then we're going to have a conversation with him. You are not the others. Uh, so this guy, this uh, native, uh, his name's James Darris, is the name of the actor, and you might recognize him, or or not, from shows like I Dream of Genie, Mannix, Police Story, and appropriately, Land of the Giants. <laughs> okay, we are men, men like yourselves. I, there's always a, it's a, this is not an objection or a criticism really, but we depend a lot upon the universal translator, you know, making all this stuff make sense. You know, that, that is a is a big flaw in this episode. Now, look, I, you know, it's it's a science fiction series. You got it. You got it. We're all speaking English. We're and, all speaking English. Yeah. But in this case, the, the fact that they're on this purely alien world, they're actually exploring a strange new world. And they speak English is jarring, just like it was jarring when they were on Gamma Triangulate 6 and they meet the Valiants. And uh, he says to Kirk, you hit me with your hand. In fact, this whole exchange feels very much like the Apple. Well, I think there's real similarities with the Apple and and ones that we will talk about. Here, yep. here's, here's the thing about the universal. So I can accept because we have to accept this idea that we have this thing called the universal translator. And basically wherever we go, it makes it so it seems like everybody speaks English. And that's just because we can't spend our whole life translating in every single episode. That would just, you know, it would take too long. I, I'm okay with that. But when you get into the idea is that there are basic concepts and we all understand these concepts. And so we create the words for those concepts, but the morgue, have no concept of men and women. So what is happening here when we say, oh, we're men or you're men and where are the women? Well, they don't have that concept. So it's it, this is where that the whole construct of the universal translator, A, falls down, yeah. and B, we're, we're on a ship <laughs> who's, tra- who's boldly going where no one has gone before. We should expect that other alien races don't have the same concepts. So Kirk, both in this and the Apple going, well, where are the children? Where, you know, men and women, all this stuff being so shocked that they don't know what he's talking about. It's like, you're on an alien planet, you know? Like, why would you expect that these things would be the same? Absolutely, right. You are small, like the others. Who are the others? The givers of pain and delight. This primitive culture has a very good vocabulary, by the way. Yeah, they sure um, do. <laughs> you will see. The others will come for you. And this is where Kirk asks about women, which there's no idea what he's talking about. Don't you have a mate? Kirk is really obsessed with men and women and mating. Including <laughs> yeah, really these primitive cultures. Why does that shot why does that surprise you, Steve? <laughs> well, it's just going, okay, I'm searching for a dude's brain. Why is this my first question? <laughs> like <laughs> Will you take us where we can find the others? And this freaks him out. Yep. No one wants to find them. We do. We want to find them. Take us there and we'll let you go. And that is when Chekhov realizes that while there's no industrialization or buildings or anything on the surface of this planet, there is something huge 500 meters 
under the surface. Right. And he goes, well, let's go find it. And this is where our primitive guy just freaks out. No, 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 you're not going there. It's all right. No, no. Uh, and he runs away. They let him go. So we're going to head over to where this uh, reading is coming from. And we end up at this cave entrance. We go inside and there's like food there and piles of weapons. And we also see this weird light. A very advanced form of technology on a planet yeah. that should, that is by and large, extremely primitive. Well, and even the weapons that are there are way beyond the technology that our primitive people could have made. It could be a warning device to keep those creatures away from the food. Or the food could be a lure set by the others to bring them in here. In other words, this is a trap. And this trap, that seems like a good idea. If it will trap the creatures for the others, Captain, won't it trap us too? Exactly. And he calls up to the Enterprise and asks McCoy to beam down. And there McCoy beams down with... Mr. Spock. And this, to me, is the turning point of this yes. episode. This is the mo moment of Spock's brain where there's just no turning back to recover and to end on a high note. So McCoy has beamed down with Spock. Spock, for some reason, is wearing the outfit that he wore in this side of paradise Yep, as one of the colonists. Uh, you know, maybe he just had it, you know, in his quarters. I don't know. And why even put him in that outfit? Why not just put him in his regular uniform? I have well, no idea. Was he naked? Wasn't he in? I mean, was he when he was on the table? Wasn't he still in the uniform? I, I don't remember. <laughs> no, I mean, we. I mean, I mean, it's literally like no. It it it's, makes no sense to have put him in a different set of clothes. But Spock has this contraption around his head, and McCoy, in order to direct Spock and have him move, is using like a remote control basically. And he starts pushing buttons on the remote control and Spock is beams down in a profile and he turns to face Kirk. And this is the, the camera zooms in really fast on Spock wearing like his headphones, basically. And the music sting on it is just supposed to convey shock, but it's funny. <laughs> it made me laugh. <laughs> For the wrong reasons. Yeah, no, it's it's terrible. It has it has all the disadvantages of being slow. The whole thing takes a really long time. It doesn't make any sense. Like like McCoy just said, I don't have any of the technology to hook up a brain or take apart a brain. But apparently, in the last fifteen hours, I could build a device that totally controls a human body like a robot and controls it with this little remote that has. 10 buttons and three knobs, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> it's right, just right. like, come on. And, like, and, and also, so when he, when he directs Spock to, to walk forward, there's this clicking sound. Yeah. And like, why is there a clicking sound? Spock is not a robot. He's still a flesh and blood human being. He's just without a brain. So what's, what is making the clicking sound? <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh. I, I really wonder what Nimoy thought of this because it's like, I can see where they went, oh, well, we don't want to do this mission without Spock. How could we bring Spock along? Because what you could do was find Spock's brain and then beam the body down to do the surgery. There was no reason. And because that's why I go back to that line of Kirk saying, well, we'll have to bring him with us. Because the only explanation I have is him. He, what he's saying is we have to turn Spock into an automaton that can walk around wherever we go, which is just totally ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. It really ridiculous is exactly what this moment is and no matter how much you suspend disbelief 
watching Star Trek, this goes off the rails. Yeah. So we slowly walk into the cave and triggers that light. And suddenly this is a giant elevator and we're speeding downwards. And I like McCoy's line. Call Chekhov and tell him to send my stomach down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Up on the surface, Chekhov pulls the old Sulu naked time move of heating up some rocks with a phaser um, because they're going to hang out there. And we're back in the elevator. And now Scotty takes a reading that there's massive power there, enough power to push this planet out of orbit. Kirk asks about the source, and he says, Either a nuclear pile 100 miles across, or or ion power. So what does that mean? We found the right place. Yep. And we slowly slow down. The doors open, and there in front of the door is this woman. We see her reach to push a button, and Kirk stuns her. And that is Luma. She's another one of the I Morgue, played by Sheila Layton. And she was on TV and shows like the Green Hornet, Hogan's Heroes, and The Odd Couple. It's very hard to tell with her whether her performance is bad because she's a bad actress or because she was directed to play really dumb and it just comes off as bad. Right. But, but for me, it, either way, it's not good. I agree. I agree. So her, it's not, not a great character and not a great performance either way. You do not belong here. You are not more. Take me to the one in charge. I wish to speak to him. And I think this is another real problem with this episode. What they decided is that for whatever reason, and I have some theories about this that we'll get into later, but this culture who lives beneath the surface, everything is taken care of them to such a high degree that they're all totally mentally atrophied into a childlike state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, do you believe that had they been raised, if if Luma was raised in the Federation, that she would be really dumb or that she's just a normal person? Uh, Well, that's a great question. In other words, is it nature or nurture that has made her so childlike? Uh, If she's a humanoid and she has the power to speak and the power to doll herself up and get dressed up really nice, I think it's, uh, it's a circumstance. I think that in the right environment, she would have been more intelligent. I, I think that I agree. I think the implication of the show is that under different circumstances, all of these people are totally capable of more. Um, and I think that's a real problem because it just say, saying people are stupid. It's not a good character motivation. Like mm-hmm. they've been living lives here. They must have interests. They must be doing stuff. You know what I mean? Yep. Like they just went, no, everyone's just kind of a moron. You know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that doesn't make for interesting character building. And Kirk is trying to get information about Spock's brain. What have you done with Spock's brain? Where have you taken it? Now, asking a person who doesn't know the name Spock what you did with Spock's brain is the nonsensical question. But we're going to co- keep repeating brain and Spock's brain over yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just, uh it's cringe inducing every time they say Spock's brain. You are not Morg or I'm Morg. Nothing about a brain. You're lying. And Kirk is getting kind of rough with her. And finally, McCoy says, It's not Jim. No change in reading. She doesn't know. And now Kirk changes his tactics and tries to play her a little nicer. Gets that her name is Luma, that she's an iMorg. And she tries to go. They grab her. And then we hear, Fascinating. Activity without end, but with no volition. Spock's voice is coming out of the communicator, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. 
So they are definitely in the right place. <laughs> Absolutely. I also think it's the, it's a nitpick, but like just this idea of somehow they randomly get Spock's voice on their communicator mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is weak. Yep, it is. And it's also weird, by the way, that he's looking at the body of Spock while talking to Spock. And it almost is the implication that when he's closer to the body, he gets a better reading from Spock. Did you get that impression? Uh, I just got the impression that he was his way of talking to Spock was looking at the body of Spock while he was talking to him through the communicator. Okay. That makes sense. I, I don't think the Wi-Fi was better when, once he got closer to Spock. <laughs> Where are you, Spock? Is that you, Dr. McCoy? And are you with the captain? Where else would I be? Mr. Spock, where are you? And this is, you know, some little cute dialogue. Mm-hmm. We'll get you, Spock. It won't be long. Practical idea, Captain. It seems unlikely that I shall be able to get to you. I wish there was more thought. Like, the experience of what is it like to be a disembodied brain inside of this controller thing, that's an interesting science fiction idea. And there wasn't a lot of thought put into what is Spock experiencing. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who is he without his body? Like, it would be interesting. Like, here's an interesting thought is what if Spock's emotions, those human emotions that he's been struggling with are linked to being within his body. And now that he is out of his body, he no longer has any conflict with the human side. He is become the totally logical creature that he always wanted to be. Or not. Or not, or well, and that's the thing is that maybe he went, I am, I don't have any emotions. I don't have any feel. Like, what, what if he said, Captain, I recognize your voice, but I have no feeling towards you, you know, and then wasn't happy. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot, there's a lot that's unexplored, but doesn't Spock say later that he's, he's has the sensation of pumping blood? Yeah, and Kirk says, "Oh, maybe you're you're actually you know controlling the ventilation of right. their life support systems," and that Spock says, "You know, I feel like I'm you know I'm I'm going off into infinity because he doesn't have the constraints of right. a flesh and blood body." But the 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 voiceover, the ADR that Nimoy had to do for these moments, he's doing the best he can with the material that he is given. You asked before, you said, I wonder what Nimoy thought of this episode. Well, I'll tell you later, (laughs) you know, uh, but what I do, what I can't say now is that he was not fond of it. And he felt like, well, I really don't have much to do with this episode. So he thought, well, I'm just going to play it cool. And like I always do, but then play it even cooler. He was okay with the fact that there really wasn't much for Spock to do. And even though he didn't care for the episode, he felt that because of what was happening with Spock, the fact that he was only able to be controlled by McCoy, like he felt like he was protected in some way. Like it wasn't like he had to do something out of character. Mm. You know, he felt like he was protected because of the constraints for this episode of his performance. That is very interesting. I mean, having the gig where your only job is to just walk around stiffly through an entire episode, that's not that interesting as an actor. No, definitely not. I want to just go back because I'm now I'm thinking about it more and more. And if I were to do a rewrite, this is the rewrite I would do of <laughs> what if essentially Spock becoming the controller was like him going through the colonar that he now is totally purged of all emotions and that he is now 
in because because you know I said how do we make this personal? Well, what if Spock has suddenly gotten everything that he thinks he wants, and that is totally being devoid of emotions, and now he doesn't like it? You right, know? Wait a minute. Let me. I'm going to take this one step further, Steve. Here you have a living person, Spock, whose brain, his intel source of his intelligence has been implanted into a machine. a machine. We've seen this happen already to some extent with Landrew in mm-hmm. Return of the Archons. There you go. Okay, but in that case, Landrew was controlling the society for almost like his own amusement, you know, uh, with having like the festival and, and having them be really chill the rest of the time and being of the body. In this case... Spock's essence and his literally his brain, his physical brain being inside the computer system, because that wasn't the case with Landrew. Landrew programmed, you know, so much of himself into that computer, but his brain wasn't in that computer. You know, Spock's brain is in this computer. But either way, you're right. If if his brain is not in his body, his half Vulcan, half human body, what's keeping Spock from being half Vulcan, half human? Nothing. He could be as Vulcan as he chooses to be without the temptations of, of his humanity, or he can be as human as he wants to be without the, sh- the shame of betraying his Vulcan heritage. Well, and let's take it even further, because now I'm excited. Now I think, and I now Spock's brain as an episode is becoming an interesting episode. What if we take this <laughs> further? Right now the conflict is I have to overcome the iMorg in order to get the technology to put Spock's brain back in his body. That's the conflict. Right. What if instead is the conflict is, Kirk has to convince Spock to return to his body. Like right now, Spock has essential immortality, 10,000 years at least. He has access to the greatest store of knowledge that's beyond anything ever in human life. He could spend those 10,000 years learning and studying that he can use sensors to see everything that goes on in this planet. It's like the, the like the scientist part of Spock, the logical part of Spock has everything that he could ever have wanted. But he no longer has his human side. He no longer has mortality and connection with other humans, connection with his friends, and that Kirk has to convince Spock to make the choice to become Spock again. So just like he had to convince Spock to make the choice to purge himself of the spores. Yes. And assume his duty again. It, beca- it becomes, you know what it is? Yeah. In this scenario, this is the opposite of this side of paradise. Paradise is where Spock gets to embrace his emotions and then has to reject that in order to come back here. And our new version of Spock's brain is Spock... <laughs> becomes the purely logical machine side of himself and now has to reject that because the true Spock, the great Spock, is the one that combines those things. That's a great point. And how many times has McCoy referred to Spock as a machine? Yep. Or where Spock says, why, thank you, doctor. Yep. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. So, yes. so this, this, so, okay, I, I'm loving this rewrite, Steve Morris. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is, is that that in order to make Spock's brain a better episode, other than changing the title from Spock's brain to something else, you have that the, the, the episode itself, the plot of it, is not to find his brain and put it back in his body, but to convince Spock that he belongs back in his body. That he, as a person that is half human, half Vulcan, is a unique, wonderful individual with his own destiny, and that he wants to be that person. And that and that that being that person 
will be more rewarding to him than than basically being the machine that McCoy always accused him of. Literally being right. that machine. Right. Right. I love it. Yeah. Well, and, and again, and, and you know, at this point now, I actually might call it Spock's brain. Like the title <laughs> Spock's brain actually kind of feels better to me because we're t- because like we're dealing with this idea of is Spock just a walking intelligence? Is he just a brain? Is that all he is? Is his body matter? Does the, does our existence within the physical world matter? Like all of those things. And, and it, go, it goes back to interesting science fiction ideas and something that's personal. That, I, this I, propose, I propose that its title be changed under the new Steve Morris rewrite from Spock's brain to to be or not to be. Okay. Okay. It is a Shakespearean title. We've sure. used many Shakespearean titles before and it, coming up in the original Star Trek. So I'm steering away from this whole morgue, I morgue, brain, brain, what is brain thing. And I am going with you in this trajectory of making the episode that they find Spock uh, or they find his brain and his essence and everything, and that he is quite happy where he is and that this is like what he has always wanted. And then Kirk, just like, just like Kirk talked him out of paradise, he has to talk him out of this, what he sees as a new paradise with something he thinks he always wanted, but it's actually not. So two two quick things. So one is is that then the end of probably Act Three is we've done all this thing, all this effort and adventure to get to Spock's brain, and we're right at the point where we found him and are ready to re- put him back in his body. And at the end of Act Three, Spock says no. Right, right. He says no, Captain. I'm staying here. I'm staying here. That's great. Second thing. So you went to Shakespeare. You went to Hamlet to be or not to be for the title. How about this from the same speech? This mortal coil. Oh, that's perfect. That, by the way, even just as the episode as it is, this mortal coil is much better title than much Spock's better. Brain. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, but needless to say, that is not what's happening because right now, as we're talking to Luma around the corner, the woman that we saw in the teaser of the episode, Kara, comes around. Kirk is immediately on her. There she is. That's the one. What are you doing with Spock's brain? What are you doing? And she hits a button on her bracelet that wipes them all out. She knocks everybody out just like she did when they were on the bridge. Except for Spock. Except Spock is standing there because what's to knock out? Because, you know, his brain isn't uh, in his body. So as we get into the beginning of Act 3, Captain's Log, he refers to the planet, which up to this point, was Sigma Dracona 6. In his captain's log at the beginning of Act 3, he refers to it as Sigma Dracona 7. Oh. So the point being is that they were not paying attention. This is Sigma Dracona 7? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's a Wrath of Khan reference, folks. Um, But no, uh, somebody wasn't paying attention. The script supervisor was saying, oh, well, you know, you call it Sigma Dracona 7 here, but it's actually Sigma Dracona 6. So they, that, that's one they shouldn't have, because that's that's probably not the script supervisor, because the log is done in ADR in post, so there's no script supervisor around. Right. Messing it, it's one thing to mess it up on the set. It's another thing to mess it up in post. You know, that's a, that's a bigger mess up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so funny when I see things where 
I am very aware of the fact that I watched edited versions of these things as a kid for television How because so? the shots of them where they're feeding the men and things like that. I was like, I never saw that. I don't think that was in the earlier oh, versions. And oh. there's the moment where you see Luma kind of mime what happened to her and getting knocked out. And it's yep. terrible. It's apt. It's because what they did, I'm sure that the, that Mark Daniels went to her and said, listen, we're not going to hear what you're saying. So just sort of pantomime it. And so she pantomimes it in a way that no human would ever do because they would be talking. It just is terrible. It's terrible. I'm glad I didn't see it when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, you know what? I, I said before, uh, previously in, in earlier episodes, uh, podcast episodes of enterprise incidents that when I was growing up watching Star Trek every night on channel 17 of Philadelphia, that I was lucky enough to watch the full, complete cuts. It wasn't until right. I, you know, went to New York or you know talked to friends in other cities, and like you, they were watching the stripped versions for syndication. So right. uh, you know, watching these episodes much, much later and seeing all these extra scenes must have been pretty awesome. <laughs> well, some of them were. All, well, you know what though? So, some of them definitely. Some of them there were things where it's like, oh my god, this is key to the story. Watching Luma do her little pantomime, I didn't miss that much. <laughs> yeah, right, sure. Um, but we see all of our guys kind of slumped in their chairs wearing these big, huge belts with these big, round belt buckles, except Spock, who's sitting perfectly upright. Um, and there is Kara, and they sit down. She pushes some button, and all of our guys wake up. What are you? Why are you here? It's interesting, her performance, because she's playing a very childlike you know, innocent thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Which kind of works and mostly for me doesn't. Because the thing is, here's the thing. She's the leader of this group of people, you know, mm -hmm. and just because she doesn't understand her technology doesn't mean that leaders don't have to do stuff. Like living life, you're going to interact with other people and have thoughts and have, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm just curious, like what, what society established this world where the men are living as Neanderthals on the surface and the women are living beneath the surface in miniskirts and they're they're they have the mind of a child and they need the this this teacher device put on their heads to have three hours of of supreme intelligence uh who set that up like well, who, funny what? you should ask, Scott, because yes. I have a whole theory, and I was debating when exactly should I bring up this theory, and now you have given me the opportunity. So the door has been opened. <laughs> like many things, this theory is totally not based in anything that they were thinking when they made this show. <laughs> right. But this case, this started to come into my brain when we were talking about the Paradise Syndrome, and we were talking about the similarities with the Paradise Syndrome and the Apple, and the idea that there was these preservers who went around and seeded different planets and then set up things to protect those planets. Here's the thought that I had. And I'm not going to make this political in any way, but here's the thing that always bugs me about the way we do stuff, which is we have different political groups that believe different stuff. And so maybe you believe that we want to have a national healthcare system. Maybe you want private healthcare system. Maybe you thought think that we need minimum wages. Maybe you don't. And the way we debate these things is that one person adamantly says, I want this, and the other adamantly says they want that, and then they try to make that happen. And if it doesn't work or it does work, they say, well, we just need – we need to lower the taxes even further. We need to raise the taxes even more. What a scientist does when they have an idea is they go, I believe that if I do this, this will happen. 
They then run an experiment and then they look at the data and see what actually happened. That's not what we ever do in our world. We never just go like, I don't know what's going to happen if we raise the taxes. Let's do it. See what, let's do it over here. See what happens. Take that data and use that to inform future decisions, right? Right. So this is the thought that I had. What if I were this supremely powerful civilization and I dealt with all these problems and I wanted to find out what would be the best society? Well, maybe I would set up different civilizations with different models and run different experiments. So maybe one model I would set up and I would say, look, let's not have anyone mate. Let's have everybody be immortal and we're going to remove sex entirely from the equation and we're going to have everything provided and that's going to be primitive and they're going to worship this thing and let's see how that society does. And that'll be the servants of all. And then this other society, it's like, let's leave them very much alone, primitive society, but we're going to make sure they're going to be protected from big natural disasters. So we're going to build this obelisk. Right. And that's the paradise center. Right. And then another one, we go, maybe the problem is men and women being together. And so we're going to separate them out. Mm. And in each of these cases, we have ways that to interfere, which is that we got uh, the main servant of all who has his little antenna, so he can get information when things go wrong that they have to make changes. We have the medicine chief who can go into the obelisk and they get hit by the memory beam, which gives them information in order to protect their planet in case we need to mess with things a little bit. And here we have the teacher, which is the same thing. Same thing, which is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, and so what I go in is like, what if the preservers were actually running different experiments on humanoids to see what the best way to live life is. What happens if we don't have mating and children? Yeah. What happens if men and women are separate? What happens if they're living this primitive lifestyle? And how will that, and then we're going to go back and we're going to check in every once in a while on these civilizations. And now we have real experiments on how humans work. And of course, Kirk comes along and messes up all those experiments because <laughs> that's what he does. Yeah, but yeah. that is my new theory about how all of this came about. I, I, I think that's a terrific theory. And I definitely thought, about a couple of things during your 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 philosophy right there. Uh, when I was watching the episode, when I was watching Spock's brain again, is that uh, the the teacher device is is very similar to the the, the device inside the uh, obelisk in the Paradise Syndrome that that's supposed to give uh, you know whoever's using it the knowledge to operate it so it can deflect right. incoming asteroids. So now this the, the the obelisk is basically the same, you know, serving the same function that we have here with the teacher. Right. And I wondered if at some point the society, the morgue and the eye morgue, you know, going back many, many, many generations, if they are descendants of the preservers. I think there's a good possibility. And I think like we could pick like which of these experiments do we think is running the best? Yeah. I don't think Morgan and iMorg are running well at all. Not at all. Not at all. I think all. that's real problems, you know? So I, I think- I, I, and, yeah. and I think I think of these three, the uh, the, the the humanoid race on the, uh, the, the, in the Paradise Syndrome is 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 doing better than the others. I mean, they're still, they're still in a primitive state, but you know, they're, they're, they're progressing along. Okay. Uh, you know, they're not, they're not living in a state of arrested development like the value. Well, we don't know. I'd say we don't know because we don't know how long they've been at that level. That's true. Yep. Could That's be, could be a hundred thousand years. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they seem, they, the, the thing about them, it's, it's hard for me. I think the servants of all, they seem totally happy. Yeah, they like, did. I don't see it. Whereas Salish is clearly not a happy guy. No, he's you not. Know? <laughs> so, so I see, but I also go the paradise syndrome. That's the most like us. 
You know what I mean? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. They're living a way that we can really understand. So I'd pro and, and you know, to be clear, they get to have sex. So I'd probably rather hang out with the paradise syndrome people as much as the servants of all seem very, very happy. Right. You're definitely not. There's, I mean, you know, well, the uh, morgues of the planet surface describe the eye morgue, the women as the givers of, of pain and delight. What's, what's the delight? Well, they get to have sex. I mean, I assume, I mean, that's how we're going to propagate the species. I'm sure that's the delight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, un- but the circumstances don't sound, I mean, depending on what your kink is, I guess it depends on what you're into. But Morgan Imorg doesn't seem like that much fun to to me. No, no. But we're awake, and they start asking questions. Um, and Kirk immediately says, "What have you done with Spock's brain?" Oh, there that there's that line again. It's just terrible. It's just, it's just like, come on. We do not know Spock. This is Spock. You saw him on the ship. You have his brain. Again, stop saying brain um <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah someone has to have a count of how many times they use brain the word brain in this episode uh, you know uh, somebody uh, whoever's listening uh and we hope a lot of people are listening of course let us know uh we we would love for someone to use a, cl- a counter to to clock the number of times the word brain is used in this episode hit us up on our on our facebook page at enterprise incidents and let us know so here, here's another writing tip is when you have a conversation going nowhere and the whole point is the conversation is going nowhere, don't have that conversation go on too long. This conversation goes on way too long. Well, and we already had this exact conversation with Luma already. So it's like, okay, we get it. She doesn't know. Finally, Jim interrupts in exactly the same way he did with Luma. She probably doesn't know. And then they change their tactic. I wish to talk to those in charge. In charge. Yes, the organizers, the managers, the leader of your people. I am leader. There is no other. That's impossible. It's, you know, you're dealing with a new society. It seems rude to be talking to someone and say, you're not the leader, when she obviously is. Who built the machines? Who are the doctors? Who operates? Who controls this complex? Control. Controller? Yes, the controller. And she's like, it's not permitted to see the controller. And I think there's another moment where the word brain is used. Yep. And at exactly 27 minutes, <laughs> 33 seconds into Spock's brain, we hear the classic line. Brain and brain. What is brain? Ah, awful, awful line. Well, and this is the difference between this and the children shall lead. I find the children shall lead excruciatingly boring and painful. This is stupid. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's just a difference. Well, and this is why it gets mocked. There's nothing, no one would care to do a satire of and the children shall lead. You know what I mean? Right. This is satireable. It's absolutely uh, ripe for the picking, so to speak, yep. in terms of being an episode to make fun of and lampoon. Now, I've heard for many years and I've read in, many books, including, of course, These Are the Voyages, that at one point, because this episode was written by Gene Kuhn, who had written a piece of the action, and he was the showrunner at the time of I, Mud, and The Trouble with Tribbles, and you know he is the producer who added levity to a series that was very, very serious, that they, specifically Bob Justman, said maybe we should make this more of a comedy. 
maybe we should make this more humorous. But it was actually Freiberger, Fred Freiberger, who said no. Now, regardless of whether they leaned into the comedy or not, it kind of does get humorous, especially in the by the end of the fourth act. So here's an episode that starts off very serious, and then it gets to a point where it kind of flips and becomes something more humorous. That worked really well in By Any Other Name. The first two and a half acts of that episode are fantastic, very suspenseful, a lot of action, big, big stakes. And then the the moment that the... Uh, they decide to sort of play up the emotions to bring out the, the, the emotions and the Kelvins to kind of make them more alien when they get back. Then it becomes a humorous episode and the shifted tones works. But in, in the case of Spock's brain, it doesn't work because at a point when there should have been a more humorous shift in tone, they got cold feet and they didn't quite go there. And this, for the rest of this episode, it's it's a war with itself. So, you know, there's that famous quote that I think is Edmund Gwen, maybe an actor on his deathbed who said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Yeah. <laughs> the reason this stuff isn't doesn't work as comedy is because it's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a weird thing that would happen when I was teaching film school. And I'll, I'll make the digression very, very short, which is that people would make a terrible movie. And because student films are largely terrible. And then all the students watching it would laugh and go, oh, my God, that movie's so funny because it was terrible. And it's like, no, it only seems funny because you're watching your friends act in a terrible movie that you all made together. If I showed this to anyone else, it's just bad. This is not funny. Like Kirk doing Fisbin, that's funny. Scotty drinking the Kelvin under the table is funny. Saying Spock's brain over and over again is bad and we can laugh at it. That is not the same as laughing at it, not with it. Exactly. Yep. Um, and then, you know, it's funny. we talked over and over again about Kirk's ability to adapt, his ability to see a weakness or figure out a new strategy in the spur of a moment. This is like the worst. He gets down on his knees and arms in the air and goes, great leader. We come from a far place to learn from your controller. It's terrible. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's yeah, it's, it's almost embarrassing when Kirk gets, on his knees and begs, begs. Well, and it doesn't work and it doesn't go anywhere. So why do it? And he starts to insist. So because the thing didn't go anywhere. And then she hits the pain button on her wrist. (laughs) And, you know, we said a lot of actors, particularly Shatner, have had to do a lot of I am being mystically tortured by something from Dagger of the Mind and Gangsters of Triskelion and many, many, many times. This is the worst. This is the worst. And by the way, those collars, those belts of obedience are very similar to the collars of obedience. Right. The episode you just mentioned, Gamester of Triskelion. In fact, in an earlier version of the of the screenplay, they actually had these collars, but they were like, and and it was it was the the producers who said, "Hey, let's put these things around their neck." And it was like the actors who said, we already did this last yeah. season. So they watched Gangsters of Triskelion and said, <laughs> oh, yeah, we got to switch it. Make it around their waist instead of around their neck. So uh, they all go out. Kara says, I must learn what to do and exits. Uh, we have a brief check-in with Sulu and Chekhov that doesn't add anything to the story. We come back as our guys wake up. But, but it doesn't add anything to the story. But it is worth noting 
that once again we have Sulu in command yeah. of the Enterprise. But and the the point being is that for the first and only time during the original series, we hear Sulu give a ship's log. That was oh, cool. that is cool. You're right. Okay, I'm good with that. <laughs> um, our guys wake up talking about just how darn painful this was, which of course Spock had had no reaction to. <laughs> They try to get out, and one of the big morgues stand in their way, and they start speculating on how this place is functioning. We see that on a table, all of their devices are sitting. Are there phasers on that table? Are there communicators? Communicators. But their phasers were separated out for some reason. Right, yes. But the the communicators are just sitting there, just wide open. Yep. Pain and delight, he said up above. I'm sure you noticed the delight aspect of this place. Yes, I certainly did notice those delightful aspects. All right, we get the we get the joke. <laughs> um, How does Spock's brain fit into this? With a communicator, we might be able to find out. And he goes over to the table where the communicators are, and the big morgue steps in front of them. This fellow is keeping us from our property. Humorous tone. His it's a humorous tone yep. that feels very I mud. Yep. No, totally. But this this could have been an I mud. This could have been a piece of the action. And I like this. I, I think this is a good, not great, but good sequence. Well, isn't there a way to correct that situation? I certainly think that science might provide an answer. It does, Captain. Agreed, Doctor. And we get into a big fight. Uh, and we take out all the guys. You know, we have your, your typical Kirk moves in here. Yeah, um, a couple of drop kicks. Yep. <laughs> and he gets on his communicator. Have you returned to the Enterprise? No. We might be able to locate you if you gave us some idea of what they were using you for. Is it medical? I'm not certain. I seem to have a body which stretches into infinity. And now, for the first time, we cut to this weird black uh, rectangular thing with these white tubes coming out of it. It looks a little bit like the cloaking device. There's definitely some cloaking device there. Yep. Um, And it's a weird, I think it's a weird um, directorial choice. I understand why they did it. Uh, that we're going to cut back as we go, okay, that's where Spock is. Right, yeah. Why are you endangering your lives by coming here? We came to put you back. Where are you? Back where? Back into your body. Thoughtful, Captain, but probably impractical. They talk about restoring the brain, and that's where he asks about the time that's elapsed. Dr. McCoy must have told you that 24 hours is the maximum my body can be. I told them. And it's like, how does Spock know about the absolute maximum time limit on keeping a body alive from a brain that's been perfectly removed from the body when that's never happened before? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> beam us a signal so we can home in on you. Acknowledged. How does Kirk know that Spock can beam him a signal? How does Spock beam him a signal? Why didn't we bring this up when we first talked to Spock? Great questions, right? But now we have a homing device, so we're very slowly going to walk out. Like, this is the other thing about the choice to have Spock with us, is it slows everything down. This whole act is slowed down. Even with a fight in it, this act feels like it is very slow. And while we walk, they ask Spock, hey, how do we get the devices off? The red button on a bracelet releases them. I know that does not make much sense. Oh, yes, it does, Spock. Does Spock have access to all of the information? I, th- I think he does. I mean, he's so supposed he, to be controlling the planet, so he, he well, has to have he, control, uh, all that information. So Spock knows how to restore a brain. But the teacher and the controller are two different things. The controller is 
Right, but I'm asking controlling. Just spot- yeah, but but wait, if the controller is controlling like the life support and just you know all the r- routine maintenance. Right. Okay, but it's the teacher. I think the teacher would have been needed to to build the device for that would house the controller. You know what I'm saying? I do, but that's my, but that's what my this is the question I'm asking you. Yeah. Does Spock have access to all the information that the teacher has? Well, the teacher, but he, that's the thing that that's what I I don't think because that, he later says it's a huge storehouse of information, right? And he looked somewhere to find out that the red thing on the bracelet releases the pain things. So maybe that's why Spock was able to tell McCoy how to finish up his brain. Well, let's okay. So let's hold off on this because, but I, but I think this is a weird. It's just not it's, saying that there's parts of this episode that, that don't quite make sense is kind of obvious. Uh, uh, obvious you know? Yes, <laughs> that is yeah. Uh, anyway, we get to the door, we enter, and there is the controller. And just as they see the controller there, we also see Kara who stuns them. <laughs> and now, instead of immediately going out for some reason, they're all still conscious. And McCoy is able to point out to Kirk that Spock is not affected. And then we watch Kirk slowly crawl over to the remote control for Spock. And somehow he uses those eight buttons while in the most agony any human can experience to have Spock walk over, grab the thing, push the correct buttons on her bracelet. I mean, have you ever tried to control like a remote control thing perfectly to do a thing like this? And, and Kirk knows how to use the remote control that McCoy built. I mean, it's all it's all just seems dumb. <laughs> yeah. But he does use it. It releases their things. They all get up. We will die. You must not take the controller away. We will all die. And Kirk describes where Spock is, who says again. Fascinating. You say you're breathing, pumping blood. Maintaining temperature? Is it possible that you're recirculating air, running heating plants, purifying water? Indeed, Captain, that is unquestionably part of what I am doing. I actually find this all kind of an interesting scientific sci-fi idea. Yeah, I do so. Now, you took his brain. You will put it back. How did you do it? I do not know. And again, we're in that same argument, and again, McCoy comes in and says, no, she can't know. And then finally she says it was the old knowledge. How do you get the old knowledge? I put it on my head the teacher. What is a teacher? The great teacher of all the ancient knowledge. And this is when we see this weird salad bowl with, you know, this transparent salad bowl with all these weird weird, uh, devices on it. It it just looks like something you would put on your head and gain knowledge from. That's, uh, it must be obvious to Kirk that, oh, that, that must be what they're talking about, the teacher. If I may explain, Captain... She refers to the taped storehouse of knowledge of the builders of this place. I scan it. A most impressive store. And they put it on her. And suddenly she stops talking. Lights go on. We hear sounds. Are some of the devices that's in this part of like the M5 unit from? Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, they've, they've repurposed a lot of stuff that yeah. was in their storage. I know you love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's so funny. I was just having a conversation with somebody that's all of filmmaking. All of filmmaking is figuring out how do I do stuff for less money? Yeah. You know, that, that is even, even on huge, big multi-million dollar movies, they're still doing that. She opens her eyes. She's suddenly calm. Her whole character seems to have transformed. Gentlemen, the controller's explanation of the functioning of the teacher is essentially correct. However, he is giving no credit to me. 
I provide the means whereby the knowledge is used. What do you think of her transformation at this moment? Uh, I think the actor is very good. Yeah, I think she does I a think good job. She does a really good job. Uh, I, I mean, look, she, she, she is someone else who, who had to give, give it her all, give it her best shot, and and you're, she goes through a really good transformation from being, you know, having almost the mind of a child to now being a genius. Well, what what I find, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but here's an interesting thing of like. What she says in this moment is not giving enough credit to me, implies that her character is important in this transformation. But we see no evidence of her character, even without the knowledge, as when before. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. if she was if they had played it as this is a primitive group of people who don't understand technology, but they still can be intelligent and interesting and charismatic and powerful in their way, that would have made more sense. Instead of just these childlike morons that are walking around, which is I what agree. they kind of did. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, from the very first, I appreciated your ability. Good, Captain Kirk. Then you will also appreciate that without the teacher, I would not have the knowledge to use that which you have thoughtfully provided. And there in her hand is a phaser. Okay. Where, where did that come from? I don't know. Because she didn't know what the phaser was when they captured them, right? But where was she keeping it? Like, like, you know, it wasn't like she just walked in and had a phaser in her hand. Like they just went through a whole thing. Yeah. She her. didn't have it now. Now. I mean, I know she's wearing a mini skirt, you know? So I mean, like, but where did she, where did she keep the phaser? And she just like pulls it, you know, just pulls it right out well, and it's set it, to kill. It's all, it's weird in so many ways. We could say like, maybe the phaser was stashed somewhere next to the teacher, but why did she know to separate the phasers from the communicators when they first captured them before they used the teacher? And when she said, I must know what to do with them, and she went to the room with the teacher, she didn't – she's been gone a long time. Did She She, she must have put on the teacher because that's how she was going to find out what to do with them. But she was pretty dumb when they walked in, even though she says this teacher lasts for three hours. All of it doesn't make sense. No, this this doesn't make sense. And it's, yeah. a, it's, it's an extremely contrived moment to bring yeah. the third act to a close. Well, and it doesn't go anywhere because we start off in act four and we're right back in the same spot. And then Scotty does a little fake faint and then we get the phaser back. So it meant nothing. The fake faint was another extremely contrived, like it was lazy. You know, I get that, you know, it was sort of played for laughs, you know, the, the way that Kirk like gives him like a nod of approval after it, it, it's pulled off successfully. But it's it just seems like really lazy writing like how do yep. we get the phaser out of this this woman's hand oh let's have scotty fake being sick i mean come on it just it's really weak and they're still trying to force her to do it she's saying no they ask how long would the knowledge last three of your hours there would be just enough time like how, how the fuck you know do that? you know how long <laughs> <time would take? laughs> yeah how do you know that <laughs> um and she refuses again and again, we're in these conversations where it's the same conversation. I want you to do a thing, you say no. I want you to do a thing, you say no. I want you to do a thing, it's not good writing. Jim, it worked for her. It might work for me. And Spock argues that it could mess up your brain because, you you know, she's an alien. I'm a surgeon already. If I could learn these techniques, I might be able to retain them. Captain, you might lose the doctor that way. He might, but we're sure to lose you if I don't try. I think this part of the scene is really good. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm totally in. This is a fully Star Trek thing. Should McCoy risk his life in order to save Spock? This is all what Star Trek's about. I'm yep. totally good with this. I, stuff. I'm with it too. Right. This is a definitely a bright spot at yeah. this point in the screenplay. 
And this idea that maybe I could preserve some of the information and bring it back with me, um, which is also where I go, if Spock has access to this information, then he could be telling, he could be communicating some of it. You know what I mean? Well, he will be. <laughs> well, sure. But he could be communicating it now, <laughs> you know, oh, see, without, yeah. without McCoy having to put the teacher on. Um, well, well, maybe the teacher will allow McCoy to work faster at it. Sure. Absolutely possible. Go ahead, doctor. Put the teacher on. She tries to resist. Scotty pulls her away. McCoy's under the helmet. Kirk lowers it down. The computer winds up. And I think Shatner's performance, worrying about his friend in this moment, is really good. I think McCoy's performance in it starting off pretty good and then starting to hurt him and then starting to overwhelm him and then going down on one knee. I think all of this is good. And then he, he picks himself up and he says, of course, a child could do it. A child could do it. He does it twice. Yeah, I agree. This is a great moment. And this sci-fi idea of you put a thing on and you suddenly know something, as a kid, I was fascinated by. I think this is a really interesting thing to gain knowledge this way. And do you know what movie I bet maybe they thought about this and maybe they didn't? Uh, that would be a movie that Star Trek was very, very much inspired by, and that is Forbidden Planet. Oh, no, I'm going the other direction. But yes, you're absolutely right. No, I'm saying a movie inspired by Spock's brain. Oh, 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 okay. Well, well, okay. Before you tell me your answer, I yes. gave you mine. And uh, I feel like the the alien technology that was left behind by the alien race in uh, on in Forbidden Planet, yeah. you know, which led to the downfall of all that. Uh, I think that was an inspiration for totally. Spock's brain, but Absolutely. what, but okay. So what was inspired by Spock's brain? Let me think about that. Give me the, give me the decade. Well, there's this device that I'm going to attach to my head and I'm suddenly going to have a bunch of knowledge I didn't have before in the nineties. In the nineties. Uh, maybe I might learn Kung Fu. Oh, the matrix. The matrix. Yes, you're right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jack into a thing and suddenly get a whole bunch of knowledge I didn't have before. Oh, so you're so we just basically connected Forbidden, Forbidden Planet, Planet to the to Spock's brain to the Matrix. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that the Wachowskis would not acknowledge, oh, you know, we were really inspired to do what we did by, I mean, because there's Necromancer and there's all these other, you know, things. <laughs> but I'm telling you, as a kid, this element, the teacher and a child could do it. I found this to be a fascinating thing. I agree with you. Cut to... McCoy's doing surgery. It's it's the lighting and is interesting that his face is all lit up. The distance between where McCoy is standing on high up on this platform and where Spock's brain is is actually weird. But maybe he's using machines to do the surgery, which would make a lot of sense. Scotty is watching in awe. Never seen anything like it. He's operating at warp speed. And while this is happening, Kirk is having a conversation with Kara. We will die. No, you'll live and develop as you should have. All of this shouldn't have been done for you. Now the women here below and the men here above will control together. And Kirk is basically saying, you'll figure it out. So what, is this, what does this conversation sound like to you? It's the end of the apple. It's the end of the apple. So that yeah. begs the question, Steve Morris, is Kirk here? Is he violating the prime directive? Yeah, well, totally. If the iMorg stole Spock's stole Spock's brain for their purpose, and Kirk is coming to the rescue of his friend and his colleague, is he really uh, violating the Prime Directive? Can't can't the iMorg get someone else 
to do their control or dirty work? Well, I think, I mean, this is the, the prime directive is dumb. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's really where we've gotten to, I think, in the course. In the it's, such a rigid, yeah. it, it's such a rigid law. It's like, if I can't interfere in any way whatsoever, then what his actions are doing is causing the whole civilization to fall, two civilizations to fall. Right. You know, because mm-hmm. the implication is there is no other brain than Spock's brain. But I also but that doesn't mean I'm saying he's doing the wrong thing. They don't get to steal Spock's brain. Right. That's what I, you mean. know, they don't yeah. get like, who are you to steal Spock's brain? So this is why I think the prime directive is, you know, we need a more nuanced law of like, we are, you know, I, you and I have the right to self-defense. I think self-defense is a relatively reasonable right. And so if your civilization involves kidnapping my son and raising him as your own, and that is your civilization, well, no, you don't get to do that. I'm taking my son back. Your civilization is going to fall. There you go. Well, you that's what's happening that. here. That's yeah. what's happening here. The other thing I'm thinking about, though, is so we take away the pain bracelets and the belts and the I more go to live with the morgue. And the morgue are these huge, primitive, giant guys. How are they going to treat the eye morgue? They're not going to be nice. No. They're going to be very resentful. I think we're going to have to have a lot of uh, Federation advisors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Keeping this place. Well, and how are are the morgue going to know how to deal with it? They're up on the planet, on the planet's surface without all this technology. This this is messed up. What's going to happen here? There's going to be a lot of of conflict. Yeah. Um, But- now McCoy is starting to slow down. And I like the intercutting where we, the audience, see McCoy slowing down and Scotty sees McCoy slowing down before Kirk is aware of it. Right. I can't, I... Bones. All the gun, you know, the, the nerves, there are a million of them. What am I supposed to do? I think uh, DeForest Kelly does a really good job in yeah. this section. No one can restore a brain. You could. A while ago, it was child's play cut to McCoy now very sweaty and we hear in a desperate hope that he can draw on Spock's brain for assistance I instructed Dr. McCoy to give priority to connecting Spock's vocal cords this is so dumb it's uh, yeah this is when it just I mean okay let's just embrace the stupidity and just go for it so we started this conversation talking about jumping the shark this is the moment. This is the moment. Yeah. Spock is going to talk us through his own brain surgery. But first, his, McCoy yeah. has to connect his vocal cords. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, uh, boy. And just as McCoy says he's dying and I can't stop it, we hear. Yes. Dr. McCoy. Spock. If you will finish reconnecting my speech center, I might be able to help. I had always interpreted this as Spock no longer had access to the controller knowledge, and this was just Spock knowledge. But you, it seems like you think he still kind of has is hooked up with the knowledge he's getting from being the controller to help him do this. Well, well, now Spock's brain is back in Spock's body, right? And McCoy is just finishing it off. So, so it is just Spock brain. It's that's just Spock. You. That's Spock what Spock is using his Spock knowledge to. Reconnect Spock's brain. And by the way, but, for all the all the criticism we've leveled on the episode using the word Spock's brain over and over again, guilty is charged. <laughs> yeah. Well, by the way, one thing that is interesting is that do you know that patients in brain surgery sometimes are awake and are being asked questions by their doctors while having their brains operated on? I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. They will ask them to like lift up your left hand or, you know, and they can even do things like stimulating different things in the brain manually 
with patients being awake with their brains being operated on. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are people listening that are actual brain surgeons, and I'm and maybe I'm saying some of this wrong, but my understanding is, yes, some of that stuff actually does go on, which wow. is nuts. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. Um, and we go through connecting. It's just like, okay, we got his voice working, and now it's just, okay, one finger, got it, wrist, done, arm, elbow, sure, I guess we're, I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's later on, we're closing, and Kirk says, well... What I know, I could have made a thousand mistakes, sealing nerve endings, joining gangular. And then Spock just sits up. He sits up and his hair is perfectly in place. You would never know that he even scratched his head, much less had brain surgery. It is so ridiculous. Yeah, it is. And everything's perfect. And he just goes, congratulations, doctor. And thank you. How do you feel, Spock? On the whole, Captain, I believe I'm quite fit. And then Spock goes off on a monologue about this civilization. Massive exposition dump. Yes. Well, and, and, and it, what it really is, is just setting up a dumb joke. A fascinating cultural development of a kind I which has... I it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. What's that? I should have never reconnected his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that is a coonism if there ever was one. And then Spock just keeps talking and we all laugh as we go into credits. So before we go on our final thoughts yes. about this episode, there was one scene that Gene Roddenberry wanted added to this episode that he wanted added on the third day of filming. And in that scene, which takes place at the very end of the episode after they beamed back aboard the Enterprise, Gene Roddenberry wanted a scene in the transporter room where Uhura presents Spock with a Vulcan medallion called the Idic, uh -huh. infinite diversity in infinite combinations. That is going to sound really familiar yeah. to everyone who has seen the next episode we are going to cover, which is, is there in truth, no beauty, because that would rear its ugly head in that episode with a revolt by the leads of our series. But Gene Roddenberry, by this point, was more concerned about his mail-order catalog than he was about the quality of Star Trek. So the Idic scene did not make it into Spock's brain, but we will see the Idic in the next episode. Well, it, it's such a sign of – that's terrible. And, and, and what's – because what's interesting is uh, the Idic thing is – it's a whole thing, obviously, we're going to talk about, but – it makes more sense in the next. It doesn't make any sense in this episode. Right. I mean, I don't even know how you would have figured out how to include it. And particularly with an episode that is as flawed as this to then go, oh, I know I'm going to spend my time trying to shoehorn some little profit making device into it. Ugh, awful. Well, well, the, the, the problem, the reason why it wasn't it wasn't filmed for this episode was because they were on a very, very tight schedule, as as we know. And because this scene would have been shot in the transporter room, like we haven't we haven't done any scenes in this episode that took place in the transporter room. So they would have had to light the transporter yeah. room that, you know, all that would have taken time and they just didn't have time to do it. But Roddenberry would get his wish with with the next episode. So um, my guess is you've hinted that a lot of people had a lot to say. Oh, boy, did they ever. Let's start with Spock himself, Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy said, I think it was an interesting idea. If you did an episode called Einstein's Brain, you'd know what you were dealing with, 
And that was the attempt to do something with a brain that was special. Starting from that premise, if I were the producer of a series like Star Trek and a writer came in and said, we have an idea to do a story about Spock's brain and somebody wants to steal it, I'd pay attention. I'd think, oh, interesting idea. Now, James Dewan said, Fred Freiberger had no idea what he was doing. He was just a line producer, suddenly handed creative control over a show that was nothing like, like nothing else on television. He was simply out of his depth, and boy, was that loudly announced to the fans with this episode. Mark Daniels, directing his 14th and final episode of Star Trek, said, Fred Freiberg and I didn't agree on what the director's role was. There are many producers who don't consider the director a partner. They consider him, shall we say, an employee. This is particularly true in episodic TV. They just want you to do the work, get the shots, and forget the rest of it. I didn't particularly care for that kind of thinking. The problem with the third year is that Gene Roddenberry didn't give the series his full attention. He was doing other things, and we needed his guidance badly. Finally, William Shatner does not mince words. He said, busty, vinyl-booted, frosted lipstick-wearing alien Amazons were suddenly snatching Spock's brain. That's when the best thing that ever happened to Star Trek happened. We got canceled for good. Wow. It is, it is, a, it is a, a tragedy to have throughout the course of this podcast, Steve, seen Star Trek grow, evolve, reach the greatest of heights. And with these last two episodes and the children shall lead in Spock's brain, we are seeing a series that is starting to die. In the next few episodes, we are going to see some key figures in Star Trek leave. We already saw Gene Kuhn and Lucas and Rod Berry and even Dorothy Fontana leave. But the worst is yet to come. And for everyone who knows and loves Star Trek like we do, what, what happens next, what happens moving forward, it is, is such a, it's so painful and, and sad to see the series sort of walk out the door. I'm trying to figure out how to put my thoughts in order because what we're talking about is it's like we're heading towards, I think tragedy is too strong a word. But it's like a, you know, a slow motion disaster that's now kind of starting. And for whatever reason, and maybe you can help me explain why this quote keeps popping in my mind. But I was trying to sum up like, well, what is it about Spock's brain that how do they go wrong? What, what, what exactly is the problem? And the quote that keeps coming in my brain, and I can't figure out why, is the opening lines from Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, which is, all happy families are alike. But every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm-hmm. It's one of those quotes where you go like, I don't, it's not that I think it's true. It's that you're sort of fascinating. And here's, here's what I think I mean by it. I spent a lot of time, you know, both in my education and in making films and in writing and then in doing podcasts and teaching, trying to analyze why things work. And so we could, I, we could be really clear about why the doomsday machine is working or really clear about what moments in a mock time or in metamorphosis or in balance of terror, whatever, like what makes it so good. Figuring out what makes something bad 
is actually a more complicated problem. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like we can point out, like, it's clear the repetition of Spock's brain and brain is brain. What is, you know, brain and brain, what is brain, all that stuff. They're bad. But how did you get there? Is well, actually really a, a harder problem to figure out. As someone who who reviews movies, I've been reviewing movies for 25 years. Yeah. And it is far easier, it has been far easier for me to write a review for a movie that I love or really like than it is for me to write a review for a movie that I don't like or hate. Like, why doesn't it work? Why doesn't Spock's brain work? Well, and the children shall lead is bad and it's uniformly bad. It's yep. also boring. It's it's an episode that if they took it out of the canon, Star Trek wouldn't miss it. On the other hand, Spock's brain is famous. It's right. famous because it, is the, it was the episode that launched the third season. Like this is what they launched the third season with. And it's like that line from the man who shot Liberty Valance. Print the legend. The legend has been that Spock's brain is the worst episode of Star Trek. And it's not. Uh, it, there are other episodes that are far worse. It's not a great episode, but it does have its merits. It's, a, it's an infamous episode. It's a no- notorious episode. And I think the problem with Spock's brain, like just the way throughout the course of this podcast episode, Steve, the way that we tracked the trajectory of this episode as starting off is really strong in the teaser and in the first act. You know, it's still good by the end of the second act. But then it gets bad in the third act and it goes off the rails in the fourth act. Watching this episode go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows is a fascinating thing to behold. And I think the reason why it goes off the rails is because they just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know, they, they didn't have their handle on the right tone and how to pull off this episode in a successful and plausible way. And there were so many rewrites done uh, and they just, they, they, they didn't really pay attention to like things like, you know, Sigma Draconis six or Sigma, Dr- Sigma Draconis seven. At one point, Kirk is saying his captain's logs and he, he, he takes the star D and he, he flips the first two numbers and, and nobody noticed. And I think, People just stopped caring. And in this case, no one cared enough to grab this episode, figure out why it wasn't working, and fix it. So maybe all of you listening might have solutions of what happened in Spock's brain. And maybe maybe you might want to visit our Facebook page, do a search for Enterprise Incidents, and give us your thoughts on Spock's brain. Or maybe you're more of a Twitter person and want to search for Enter Incidents, where you can leave your comments there. Enterprise Incidents on Instagram, so you can include photos with your comments on Spock's brain. And of course, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, leave your comments. We love interacting with you there. And if you want to follow me you can do it at sr morris on twitter sr morris one on instagram and i'm not going to talk about my podcast instead i'm going to pitch my documentary great white sharks beyond the cage of fear how does that relate to spock's brain well i'll tell you they have always believed that great white sharks have a brain the size of maybe your thumb that they're real dumb creatures and recently they've discovered these other organs that are that go out from behind the brain triangularly and that great white sharks might be much much more intelligent than we ever thought and we explore great white shark brains 
in Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, which is available through Amazon Prime. Scott, how would people find you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Mance. And just like I made this challenge during our last podcast episode on And the Children Shall Lead, I challenge our enterprisers to go to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and defend Spock's brain. <laughs> if you think Spock's brain is really good or great, go to our Facebook page and let us know why you think Spock's brain is unfairly maligned and defend it. Defend the merits of Spock's brain. And there is one more way that you can support us and Steve on Anchor. How do you do that? Well, the easiest thing is just go to the show notes and it's in every single podcast app. It's on YouTube. Just look at the notes. The top thing in those notes is a link. You click on the link. It takes you to our page on Anchor where you can subscribe to Enterprise Incidents for as little as 99 cents a month. Just think of it. It's a tip jar. We really, really do appreciate it. I definitely, like Steve said, go to Apple Podcasts and leave leave a review of Enterprise Incidents because we love those. We read those. And we need those reviews to really stand out. And, uh, you know, definitely go go to our Facebook page. We love the engagement. We love interacting and engaging with enterprisers who have been commenting on our our show, on our podcast, and uh, let's just keep that going. In the meantime, next episode of Enterprise Incidents, we rebound in a very big way, thank goodness, with a top quality episode, and that is, is there in truth no beauty? Absolute standout of the third season, and after two back-to-back clunkers like And the Children Shall Lead and Spock's Brain, this is one conversation we are very, very, very much looking forward to having to reinstall our love for Star Trek and what has always made Star Trek so great. Is There in Truth No Beauty is next on Enterprise Incidents. Please join us, and until then, keep going boldly. Keep going boldly.